that wonderful round from the choir to be for us a preface of this morning's passage. I, I pray that God will open our hearts and minds to receive this word as it comes to us from the sixth chapter of Micah, verses six through eight. O oh God, with what shall I come before you, the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? None of that, none of that. For he has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O oh God, may we hear, and in hearing may we do, in Christ's name. Amen. It should tickle your funny bone, at least, that huh, this is the fourth of a four-part series on the meaning of life. Like, you can even know the meaning of life in four sermons. It would take 40 years, if that. It's more like a third grader trying to teach a class on quantum physics during recess. I am neither qualified nor have I enough time to do this justice. But as a good friend of mine would always say, it is what it is. And so fools rush in where angels fear to tread. So let's rush. For three weeks, I've painted the picture of the human search for meaning and purpose of life, beginning with searching for it. Jesus searched for 30 years before coming up out of the waters and hearing in his baptism, God say to him, you are my divine son in whom I am well pleased. Then he knew the culmination and meaning for his life, for sure. The disciples were walking beside John the Baptist, and John Baptist points out, there goes Jesus, the Messiah, the one you're seeking, and they follow after him on search, looking for that Messiah, without which they would not have come to know him. And Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee in the third week, and he sees disciples out in a boat fishing, and he calls them by name and tells them to leave their boat of comfort and safety, to jump out of their sweet little world of of what they knew to be true into a whole new journey of what would be an adventure and follow him. The search is vital for understanding the meaning. And I was trying to make the case that no matter our circumstances or conditions, meaning is a vital part of what we ask of ourselves and why we understand our purpose. You know, um, if you're, if you're a child who just graduates from kindergarten, your meaning and purpose is different than an than a 18-year-old who goes off to college or 
or your meaning and purpose is different than a single parent who's just been made single by the death of a spouse and now has two kids to raise, everything changes in terms of meaning and purpose and goals. Meaning apparently is about our emotional and existential significance. It's meaning is what moves us. Purpose is about our long-term aim or the guiding principle that we live by that flows out of meaning. They're not sequential. Goals come from that too, but not sequentially. They all interact much like the Trinity interacts, three in one, all in unity yet different. So here we are. Fourth week, you can applaud. Fourth week of this sermon on meaning and purpose. I would say that as Christians, our meaning and purpose and goal is to become more human in the good sense of the term, in the way we were created as human beings, to become more human in the way that Jesus was fully human. That's our purpose and goal and from which we find true meaning. We are homo sapiens. That is to say that God created us with the propensity to grow and evolve and become more than we already are. We are homo in the sense that we are from the ground, the, the humus, the dirt, the ashes. We are from that, taken from that, which is what homo is, and sapiens in that we are sages. We are wise, we can think, we can question, we can wonder, we are curious, we can, we can even ask questions of meaning. That's what separates us from any other creature. We are grounded in the dirt and we can look up into the starry skies of heaven and wonder, where do we come from? The Bible, we think, has all the answers. I would argue with that. I think the Bible has just as many questions that are left unanswered. And the question, most of all, that the Bible asks is of us. What are you going to do, Mary Oliver's wonderful poem, with your wild and crazy life? Your one wild and what are you going to do with it, the Bible asks. And it gives us instructions of what it is that we're called to do and how to do it. From Micah, it's clear our purpose is not sacrificing everything to God, not buying God's love with indulgences, not going to church and wearing a pin for every single Sunday school class I've attended for the last 66 years. All of that's good for its own sake, but not for the sake of buying God's love. Our, our purpose, according to Micah, is to do what God commands, that is to, to do justice, to love kindness and mercy. Got that part? And to be humble, the ground of our dirt-like being, remembering who we are and where we've come from. 
like thinking. Uh, science was built on that Greek-like thinking. That's important and vital for who we are as a civilization. But for the Jews, it, it wasn't in the head. It wasn't through thought. For the, for the Jew, it was about practicing and acting the way God had called them through the many laws and requirements and expect the commandments. The theological term for this is sanctification, if you're one of those theological people. The human term for it is growing up to be an adult and a human being with meaning and purpose. Accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, which seems to be the church's main thrust in order that we may be justified by God and get to heaven, misses the point. Sorry. That's great. That's, but that's, that's about the meaning of death and what comes after. The meaning of life is not just to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. It is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ so that in doing so, we might become more fully who we are and who God has called into this world. Humility is a hard lesson to learn. You feel mortified by it, you know? When, when, you're, when you're humbled and you, it, humiliation, you know, it's a hard, but it's a good lesson. Realizing that we are of the ground should hold us to the ground. We are also, however, beings, sapient beings with brains and wisdom. And those two don't always go together. What we are is a conundrum and a conflict, an enigma to ourselves as well as everybody else. And the Bible knows that. We are as prone to sin as sparks fly upward, the psalmist says. The Greek question is, what is meaning? What is, what is true? What is real? The, the Hebrew question is, what do I do? What do I do? I went off to seminary hoping I would do something. I went off to seminary hoping that I would learn all the theology that I could learn, because I didn't do great in college. I was kind of humiliated in college, to tell you the truth. I made an A in fraternity and girls and, <laughs> and not too good in the other things. And that was a mistake. I was humbled by it. So eight years later, when I go to seminary, it's like, yeah, I'm going to finally get up and, and play like I'm smart. So I, I took all the theology courses I could take because that seemed to me like philosophy, theology, you know, I'd sound smart if I knew it. Plus, I wanted to learn everything I could about God so that if I knew about God, I would get closer to God. So I took John Calvin's course and I took the history of Presbyterianism and I'm all the way down the line and I'm, and I'm learning and I'm getting it and I'm, I'm actually thinking I'm smart. And, you know, uh, and, and I was, you know, but in a different way than I expected. It was good stuff. I love seminary. I got positive strokes from seminary. I also learned about Calvinism. And I was grounded in Reformed theological doctrine. And I learned that we cannot earn God's favor no matter what. We are not saved by works. And I learned that the more righteous we try to be, the the less righteous we end up being. It's 
called self-righteous. And I learned that there's plenty of evidence to support the fact that we are all grounded in original sin and that we're, and that, that we're all infected by it. I mean, the Crusades in the Middle Ages, all in the name of Jesus, the anti-abortion Crusades, recently in the violence that followed, the violent liberal movement toward, you know, the cancer culture, the constant violence out of crazy gunmen who are convinced that they are righteous, and the crazy police beating the dog out of somebody because they feel righteous too. And what I've learned since seminary is that the journey of faith is less about knowledge and more about action. What we do and how we do it matters way more than how much we know. There was this doctrine called original sin. Since Adam and Eve, the doctrine goes, we have all fallen. That's the original sin. None of us can live the life worthy of God's love. But I got to tell you, you know, that's that like doctrine that has half truth to it. Because yes, maybe our nature is of original sin, but our human is of God, the image of God. And so that may be the conflict, both the image in us of God and our nature, our nature that is prone to not good stuff versus our humanity that wants to rise above it. That's where we find true meaning. Which one do we give in to? God said, it is what it is. Forget about it. Now go. Go, Abraham, and start a new people. You will be a blessing to all the nations. Go, Moses, and free the people from Egypt. Go, David, and be that presence in Israel of what a real king looks like. All the way, go, people of Israel, and follow Moses into the wilderness. Go into the promised land over and over. Go make disciples of all nations, Jesus says. Go and forgive seven times 70, Jesus said. Bring eyes to the blind, help the lame walk. Go to the last, the lost, the least, and help them come to know that God loves them as much as the best and the richest and the most powerful. Go, Micah says, and do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. And this is the map. If you want to know what to do in life, this is the map. I know justice is one of those words where it could be just us, or what is just to me may not be just to you. But we know justice when we see it because it is always grounded in mercy and humility. Now I need to segue back to why we're having a Kirkin of the Tartans by uh, the last week of my four-part series on meaning. And, and from a book called How the Scots Invented the Modern World. If you haven't read it, you should. It's fascinating by Arthur Herman. He makes clear that the Scots, more than any other European peoples, insisted that commoners deserve to be able to read and write. Why? So that they could read the Bible for themselves 
and know and learn for themselves what the Bible says and not instead have the priest or the Pope or the Anglican authorities tell them what it is they should believe and what they should know. We are called to know for ourselves, the Scots said, and so they invented public education for just that reason. The Scots were also clear that, that because of the power of the, of the Anglican and Catholic and, and, and uh, English authorities, that we have to fight for our independence. Does that sound familiar? And that all authority, all authority, ultimately is corrupt. Not totally, but ultimately is corrupt. It maintains that corruption in, under, in order to maintain its authority. And so they fought for it, hard fought for it, with much blood spilled. And today as we celebrate Tartan Sunday and the, and the Kirk, the church, we have to claim that strong declaration of independence that takes the kind of strength to live it out. But I also want to say we need to be careful, not to throw water on the parade. But if, if we're celebrating the clans, listen, they, they were not worth celebrating. They were the most warlike, bloody, mean-spirited group of people who ever walked the earth. Sorry, I know I'm stepping on some clan toes here. <laughs> Their whole life was of meager existence where the clan chieftain held all the power to all the people and the peasants who worked the land, and the chieftain would tax them beyond fairness and justness. And the chieftain would say, you know what? Uh, we Camerons, we're just going to go over there and take out a few McDonald's and Glencoe because the English, because the English told us we'd, we'd get some wealth from that. So they did. They took out about 39 men, women, and children in Glencoe just because they were McDonald's and we're camp. That's what they did. They fought each other. They stole each other's uh, horses and they didn't have any horses, uh, cattle and sheep. They stole everything from It's just crazy. So let's not get this like romantic innocence about how cool the clans are. They were nasty. <laughs> and also have to say, let's not get this romantic innocent about how wonderful the early Presbyterian church was. The church formed in Scotland by John Knox. John Knox was meaner than any clan member ever thought of being. He was meaner than a den of snakes and more feared. He would hang people for heresy. Witches were burned at the stake in Scotland, or at least it was on the law until the mid-1700s. The church is the one who did it. Can you imagine? Here we are about authority and independence from it, yet it is just that same authority that gets convoluted when when the church is born in Scotland, and that's the irony of it. When the English finally brought unification to Scotland, it was thought to be a terrible thing, but it ended up being a wonderful blessing. For the English supported law and order. In order for the Scots to practice independence, there has to be rules, otherwise it's chaos. From the moment of Culloden and, and the end of the clans 
really, from that moment on, Scotland began to thrive and grow in an enormous rate. In capital, in industry, in well-being. The Kirk was mean. It's less mean now. God, I hope we are less mean now. The Beatle used to go down in front of, of, in front of John Knox when he walked down the, the Miracle Mile with a staff, not the Bible like today, but with a staff on top of which was a mace, and the purpose was to beat back the people who wanted to assault Knox because he was so mean. What happened to Micah? They got so caught up in predestination, like, yeah, we are all predestined, some to go to heaven, some to go to hell, and we have no choice in the matter. I got to tell you, Calvin was wrong on that, in my opinion. Throw me under the bus. I don't care. We have been given human freedom is what it means to be human. We have independent freedom to make decisions. Yes, we have genetics. Yes, we have the culture and the family we grew up in. But at least 30% of what we have is freedom and independence to make our own decisions, to choose God or not, to follow God or not. We are not chosen by God to be who we are. We are born by God to become what we can be. And the way we do it according to Micah, is to do justice. You got it, right? To do justice, to love mercy and kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. That is who we are. The image of God created in us with the power of God's love and care, strumming through us like the Holy Spirit and the suffering love of Jesus Christ, showing us the way as Christ goes to those who suffered and who even suffered ultimately himself. We do this, we'll find all the meaning, all the meaning and purpose we can imagine. By the grace of God, amen.